Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Margaret Blaustein in part one of their discussion on the attachment, self-regulation, and competency treatment framework, or ARC model, she co-developed in 2005. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Margaret Blaustein about the ARC model, which actually stands for Attachment, Self-Regulation, and Competency. So thank you so much for being with us here today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. So, you know, do you think you could start by just letting the listeners know a little bit about your background and how um, you began on the journey to develop ARC? Sure, sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I focus on children and families. That's always been my area of focus and um, have a, a pretty strong background in developmental processes and attachment. It was an area I was very interested in uh, as a student and in my early training and happened to land at the trauma center in Brookline at a time, uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, at a time that uh, was just before the start of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. And so sort of a lovely confluence of factors came together, and ARC is sort of the result of all of that. Oh, wow. So, yes, that's, that's great. And I, I think, you know, listeners may be familiar with a lot of the work from the center, such a well-respected mm-hmm. group. You know, you, you talked about, um, you know, that you had an interest in attachment. And so why don't you also just start telling us a little bit about the overall model of ARC, a little bit about it. Sure. So ARC is a... a framework that was co-developed by myself and my colleague, Christine Kinneberg, and she and I have been working on ARC together with the support of a lot of colleagues and collaborators since about 2004. We always sort of struggle to pinpoint exactly when because ARC really grew organically, um, and it really was an attempt initially just to better define what we understood treatment for youth impacted by chronic, complex, multifaceted stressors, adversities, and traumas to be. So if we went out into a community setting, if we went into a family shelter program, or we went into a school, or we went into an outpatient center, what is it that we're trying to do to support kids who've experienced multiple adversities, often in the context of relationship, of interpersonal relationship, and often adversities that hadn't stopped at the time that we were starting intervention? And did some of those concepts translate from outpatient treatment to these other settings? So were there things that I do as a therapist in individual therapy that I would hope a teacher is also doing with a student in her class or that we would hope a milieu program, a residential program is also doing with the youth in those more intensive level of care? 
So we started to define concepts. What are the core concepts that we're trying to target in intervention? And where we landed, and, and ARC has, has grown a bit over time. It's changed and we've shifted it and we've shifted the concepts a bit. The, the heart of it, I think, has remained the same. But, you know, as, as with anyone in this field, we're continuously learning. So there's, there's been some changes over time. But the three core domains have always remained the same. So ARC is organized around, at this point, eight core concepts of intervention within three broad domains. Attachment, uh, our goal is to build safe enough caregiving relationships for youth. Regulation, um, so the ability to manage physiological, emotional experience, and then developmental competency. Um, we're really looking at what are the capacities that are often impacted by trauma and adversity and that are really critical over time to resilient, healthy lives. And so those are the things that we target in ARC. Yeah, well, and I, a couple of things that you just said there that I love, and I know before we started the podcast, I was sharing my training was in 2011, and I've been a mm -hmm. big fan ever since, um, And but I like that you said it's a framework, and I, I mm -hmm. like it. It's not, you know, necessarily a step-by-step -step manual, um, and I think that that um, is helpful in, in a applying it in a broad range of settings. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that, that you developed a framework as opposed to like a very clear manualized approach. You do this, you do this, you do this. You know, I, I think it, it, what you're saying is exactly sort of, again, I hate to say the heart of ARC, but it's very much sort of the goal of why ARC was created the way it was. Um, there are some uh, amazing, more structured treatments that exist, and our experience in going into some of these more complicated settings in which there wasn't a ton of infrastructure or a ton of capacity yet, where interveners were not necessarily mental health clinicians, for instance, um, a lot of the more structured interventions were not landing, and it was because the system itself wasn't yet in a space where it was able to operate in a trauma-informed way. There was also so much complexity in the youth that we worked with where, uh, it, you know, we work with kids who, yes, perhaps they experienced historical abuse or historical exposure to violence, but they might also currently be in ongoing chaotic settings or still experiencing homelessness or having a parent who's really struggling with substance abuse. And it means that treatment is often fluid and has to shift in response to the current experiences of the child, the family system, and also the context and the environment and the population. And so, you know, for instance, whereas if we take, let's say, the first attachment concept, which is caregiver affect management, our goal is to really support the caregiving system in normalizing, understanding, reflecting upon, being aware of their own emotional experience, their own reactions and responses to youth, and to have the tools, resources, and supports that they need to address those reactions. How you address caregiver affect management and when you address it and in what way is going to vary greatly, right, across kids and families and across settings. 
but we anticipate that it's going to matter no matter where we go. So it matters for a teacher to be aware of their emotional reactions to a student who's really challenging and to have supports for that. And it matters for a direct care staff member to have that experience seen and validated and held and have supports provided. And it matters for a parent who is struggling with, you know, many different adversities and stressors to have that same validation and support, but how we address that's going to look very different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I should say, as I'm saying this, that that ARC is really designed to translate across service settings. And so it's meant to be both an intervention model, but it's also an organizational model. It's meant mm-hmm. to support the same mm-hmm. concepts translate into organizational practice, just in a different way, obviously, yes. than how they might translate in clinical practice. Yes. And I think, you know, that brings up a good point that we found at Chaddock, um, as we were trained in ARC, um, you know, we were pretty far into our journey of understanding attachment-based trauma-informed care and trained in numerous different models. But some of the staff, particularly maybe staff that hadn't been there as long or even staff that hadn't been there quite a while Mm -hmm. were like, oh, wait, like this, it's sort of like this gave me a bunch of hooks to kind of hang everything on in an organized Mm -hmm. fashion. So I think in that way, Um, Maybe you consider yourself kind of attachment and trauma savvy or whatever, or Mm -hmm. don't, but either way, I think there's like helpful pieces of this for you. For sure. Yeah. And one of the things that we actually hear quite a bit, and it's it's interesting, it's not, it's both from people who are newer in practice and who are sort of figuring out where to hang things, which hooks to hang things on. But it's also often from people who are more savvy who say, yes, I'm already doing this, but this is really giving me sort of a common shared language to think about this range of interventions that I do. And so the idea of having an organizing structure and common language, I think, is often one of the the appeals of the framework for people, um, along with the flexibility to approach the concept in a range of ways. So, you know, you can support modulation, you know, one of our regulation goals, you can support modulation through sensory strategies, through gross motor strategies, through play, through, for some of you, through vocal talk therapy, through, you know, cooperative games. There's so many different ways to get there. And one of the things we really emphasize is just the critical importance of understanding why you're using any technique that you're using so that, we don't want the technique to drive the train. We want the concept to drive the train. So it may be that I love a certain technique, but I should be able to say with this young person in this moment, here is why I think this technique will be helpful. Here is what I'm trying to target. Here's what I'm trying to address. Here's what the young person is on board with and understands that they're collaborating with in trying to address, as opposed to I'm using this technique because I like this technique. Or, and I'm not sure why. Yeah, or I think what's now become very popular is, um, well, I'm just using this because it's an evidence-based technique, so we'll just train everybody in that and use that for everyone. And I always say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, evidence-based for what? Okay, we got to remember right. that other part, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> not just an right. space for anybody at any point, but... So, yeah, and I think this is one of the complicating things for so many of the of the children and adolescents and families that we work with is 
we use this word trauma to define such a huge range of stressors. We have kids whose experiences don't fall neatly into those boxes. We have kids who've experienced, for instance, chronic neglect and caregiver challenges or, or you know, things where you can't say, like, this is the thing right. that led to the before and after, the outcome that we're looking at. It's, we're looking at layers upon layers that have just shaped the course of development and often not just within the family, but on a more systemic level, right? And so we have often multiple generations or communities who've experienced stress and adversity. And how do you think about sort of bringing in developmental capacity building interventions that support the child, the caregiver, the family unit, and the community uh, without necessarily having their experience fall neatly into a diagnostic box. Right. Especially since some of the boxes aren't hitting very well sometimes, <laughs> which is a whole other <laughs> a different conversation. But it is, and it's one of the challenges because, um, you know, our kids often present with five, six different diagnoses, none of which fully captures the precipitance of their experience. Yes. Uh, and if we try to just match intervention without really understanding sort of who this child is and why it makes sense that they're engaging with the world in the way they're engaging, then part of the time all we're doing is retreating their coping strategies, right? right, as opposed to really addressing those core underlying issues. Right, right. Yeah, it's so true. Um, so I... You know, as I was reviewing some of my different mm -hmm. things about ARC before this, um, I came across this chapter, which I think is kind of old by now. It's called Attachment Theory and Practice, um, mm -hmm. providing the family a secure base for therapy with children and adolescents. And in that, you say other interventions for children who've experienced trauma often target post-traumatic symptoms while neglecting the larger caregiving system and array of impacted developmental tasks. And I think that that, I mean, that's just what you're saying, that, that you, mm -hmm. you guys have that in mind and think about that. Um, and sometimes I think what was so refreshing for me about your model is as someone who's really passionate about attachment theory and I'm a therapy trainer mm -hmm. and a CPP and a coder for the AI, it just felt, it felt sometimes like the attachment world and the trauma world are like this parallel universe out there and they're like not mm -hmm. interacting. And so that was so, so exciting um, to me about ARC. I mean, do you, do you see that? Do you feel that? Is, was that Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that given the population I work with, understanding their experiences and the absence of paying attention to the attachment system is like you're working in a vacuum. There's a sort of focus and you're missing this larger picture in service of this detail. Um, and, and I think it's a primary focus of intervention because if we think about it, so many of the symptoms, and I'm making air quotes here, but so many of the symptoms are presenting behaviors or, again, in air quotes, pathologies that we see in kids really represent their adaptation to the world in which they live. Mm -hmm. And we can do all the intervention in the universe 
focused on building skill in the child, but if that child continues to live in a world that feels inherently unsafe, they're not going to use those skills because they have to continue to survive. Right. And so part of the focus of intervention has to be supporting as much as we can the safety of the world around the child. And obviously there's a lot we don't have control over. There's many places we can't intervene, but boy, such a huge part of the safety of a child is their surrounding attachment system, whether it's a primary caregiver or a resource caregiver or a system of care. Um, and we really think broadly about attachment. We see any influential adult in the life of the child as a potential target of our attachment blocks are we call them our building blocks but our attachment right. targets of intervention and the more we can support that attachment system in themselves feeling supported mm -hmm. in being able to sort of read and respond to the behaviors of of youth to mm -hmm. not to the degree possible, personalize them and to feel like they have increasingly effective strategies for responding to those behaviors, the more the child can then in turn begin to use the skills that we're simultaneously working on and those developmental capacities. So it really has to be two parallel streams, I think. Yes, yeah. Like, and I mean parallel that are intertwined as yes. opposed to going in separate right, directions. Right, right, yes. And, and, you know, as you're saying, if the behavior is adaptive for the environment and we're not working with the environment, well, why would you give up the behavior? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. One of our one of our sort of deep seated beliefs. We have we have we have, as many people do. We have certain things that we say so often that people get sick of hearing them. But one of them is behavior makes sense. Um, and and we believe that really strongly that behavior makes sense and that a pretty significant part of the work in, in helping youth manage, you know, the, again, air quotes, challenging behaviors that they're presenting with is to understand why those behaviors make sense for that child and to increasingly pay attention to the need that the behavior is communicating. Because if we don't respond to that need, the behavior is going to continue. Mm -hmm. So we see behavior as communication and it's communication that makes sense in the context of the child's world. Right, right. And, you know, just to add, of course, too, that that sometimes even if we begin to change the child's world, they hang on to those behaviors for absolutely um, there. We could say habitual. We could say very ingrained. We could say whatever we mm -hmm. want. But I think, um, you know, understanding, too, that 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 can take time to change. You know, yeah. it's, it's, well, it's an important it, part of it's survival. The, Sure, absolutely. I mean, behaviors that are laid down as part of survival, you know, nothing is as hard to shift as something that helped you survive, right? And we use the example of, you know, you eat something once that makes you sick. It's, it's one-time learning. You're never going to look at that food again without some part of you starting to feel queasy. Oh, now you have kids who are surviving right? Seven years yeah. straight, you mm -hmm. know, eight years, nine years, 10 years, 15 years by engaging in behaviors 
just giving them safety for a few weeks or a few months doesn't necessarily mean they feel safe. It's actually, it's, it's, it, I'm glad you're naming it because as you know, it's such a critical part of the education and support for caregivers. I mean, we work with a lot of resource caregivers, um, you know, foster parents or kin, uh, you know, kin caregivers or people in more sort of structured settings, residential programs, juvenile justice programs. And I think one of the things people struggle with a lot when they're in that caregiving role is, but I'm nice, but I'm acting safe, but I am not being threatening to this child. So why is this child treating me as if I am a source of danger, as if I'm doing something terrible to them? And then that feels bad. You feel ineffective and you feel, you know, you can take it personally or you feel hurt. I mean, all the things that we feel because we're human beings doing this work, right? Um, and and really helping the caregivers start to understand how much relational history is present in every interaction you have with a child, even if it's not your relational history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And it's even more complicated when it is your relational history. Exactly. Right? And so when yeah. you're supporting a primary caregiver who's starting to learn how to shift and change things over time. And it's, it's, it's why, I mean, from our perspective, the adult in the relationship also has to feel safe and supported because mm-hmm. if what we're doing is saying, you should change this, you should do this differently. I mean, that doesn't feel good right? Yeah. if you're the caregiver. Um, so holding it, it makes sense. Like just like the child's behaviors make sense, your own behaviors make sense, your own reactions make sense how do we understand them and how do we help you do it in a way that feels increasingly effective and meaningful and in line with your values and your goals and relationship as possible? Because, you know, most people are doing the best they can with the resources they have. But for a lot of the caregivers we work with, there are not very many resources. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's so true. Could you, I know under um, the first block of attachment, you have different targets. Um, Would you be able to talk a bit about some of those? Sure. So, so what I should say is, is we do have these three core domains. I'm going to answer your question in just a second and talk about the attachment targets. One of the I'd say relatively newer nuances of the framework is that we've started to really pay attention to what we call our three foundational strategies. And these are the sort of three really core foundational things that we believe run through every aspect of the work we do. And they're certainly very relevant to the attachment work. So I just want to name those. Yes. And that is that in everything we do, we're thinking about engagement is the first one, really what the stake is and the investment is in the process of the child, of the caregiver, of the system, of the provider. We ourselves have to feel engaged in the process. And so we're continuously paying attention to where is the engagement, because obviously engagement is dynamic and it shifts over time. Um, Education, which also really runs through all of our targets. We believe really deeply that information is powerful. Uh, and that it, it gives people, in many ways, a sense of agency over both why they're 
responding in the way they are currently and why they may be continuing to do uh, or wanting to do the work that they're wanting to do, why it makes sense for them to continue to collaborate in whatever the intervention process is. So we bring education in and then routines and rhythms, which used to be for people who are familiar with ARC sort of in its older iterations, it used to be one of our core targets, but we really see it as a process variable in many ways. It's something that comes into every piece of work that we do, we're paying attention to building rhythm in how we engage and how we support the child and the family system and the relationship. So those are our foundational targets or our foundational strategies. Mm -hmm. And with an attachment, the attachment domain, we have three core targets. And, you know, I should say the way we sort of structure the framework is we have these overarching domains, then we have these core targets within the domains, and then each core target has its own sub-skills or sub-goals. Um, but really just sticking with those targets, the first one I already mentioned is caregiver affect management. And our goal there is really to support the caregiver or caregivers or the caregiving system in understanding, recognizing, normalizing, and having resources to manage their own reactions, their own understandable reactions to the uh -huh. stressors in their lives, and in particular, the both joys and challenges associated with caring for a child impacted by stress and adversity, often when the parent themselves or the caregiver themselves has their own experiences with stress or adversity. So the, the first target is caregiver affect management. The second is attunement, which really is about rhythm in many ways. It's about how we accurately both read and respond to the messages that were sent. And so, you know, the way we sort of think about this or, you know, talk about this is think about someone you know who you know by the way they say hello to you or by the way they walk into the room what kind of day they've had. And you know that because you can read their body, you know, their, their level of tension and the way they walk and the tone of their voice and all of these messages that they send that may or may not match the words that they're saying or what's on the surface. And so it's that process of being able to read someone and then also respond in a way that mirrors that person's experience or meets the needs of that communication. So, you know, I may in my attunement read that you're in a space where you're feeling really upset and you need some quiet companionship. But if my response to that is to say, all right, but now we need to talk about, you know, something else. Right. It's not an attuned response. Right. right. And so it can lead to more distress. So we're trying to support that attunement. And then the third target is effective response. And really what effective response is about, I tend to think of it as the marrying of caregiver affect management and attunement with how we then use those capacities to respond to child behaviors. That so many kids present with really challenging behavior. I mean, it's the thing, the thing that gets kids in the door of services is often the behavior. Mm -hmm. And people want, you know, how are we going to respond to this behavior? What is the behavioral strategy that we're going to use? And our stance is there's so many things that impact being effective in responding to behaviors, particularly behaviors that are driven by the trauma response. So behaviors that are either about 
danger avoidance or safety seeking and behaviors that are about meeting needs, getting needs met. And so what we really focus on with effective response is how to support caregivers first in really managing, recognizing, tuning into their own emotional reactions to those behaviors, because obviously if we escalate as the child escalates, nothing goes well. Right. Um, to really use attunement to try to start understanding the reasons for that behavior. What are the triggers? What are the patterns? What is the need being met, et cetera? And then to use a handful of strategies, including meeting needs, supporting regulation, and then really purposefully experimenting with different strategies. So, so can I just say something about that one? Because I just think it's really great. Um, so I know in the beginning when we had our training, like years ago, it was consistent mm -hmm. response. And, Thank you. Know, and what a good change, because we talk about be consistent, be consistent. Well, if it's not effective, being consistent isn't a good idea. So. That's exactly. It's exactly why we changed it. Yeah. That is one of the targets that has gone through the most transformation in the course of the of the sort of development of ARC. And, you know, part of part of what we really struggled with was we used this term consistent response and we actually found it got used against kids all the time. People would say, well, I have to be consistent, so I have right. to do this thing. Whether or not this makes that, sense right now. Right, <laughs> right. So this thing that I'm doing that's escalating a child, leading me to feel helpless and ineffective and making everyone fall apart, but I'm being consistent. And we had to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that's not what we meant at all. We used completely the wrong language. So let's backtrack and say, how do we really identify a process for responding that increases the felt safety for everyone involved, for the adult and for the child? And it's not about there being a specific response that's sort of going to be best. It's about really using our detective skills to try to understand where the behavior is coming from. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for instance, this is one of these things we get a lot of, I won't say pushback sometimes, but it, it, understandably it takes a little while um, because some of what we say goes against sort of classic behavioral things. So, for instance, a child who is acting in a way, I, I use sort of a straightforward example, acting in a way that's really attention-seeking. And what classic behavioral strategy would tell us is don't feed negative attention-seeking behaviors with attention. You ignore, you take attention away, you have the child separate. What we say is if the child's behavior is communicating a need for attention, then giving the child attention is going to, over time, prevent the need for the behavior. And it doesn't mean that we can't name, you know, for instance, hey, you know, Jenny, I see that you're really needing me to pay attention to you right now. It's so hard for me to pay attention when you're interrupting because I need to listen to you know, Paul over here as well, but I really want to hear what you have to say so that we can name the need, respond to the need, still limit the challenging behavior. I mean, obviously, that's a very simple example, um, but the idea is that naming and meeting the need doesn't prevent us from also addressing the more negative aspects of the behavior, but it's got to be a both. It can't be a one or the other. 
This concludes part one of the two-part conversation about the ARC model between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Margaret Blaustein. Part two will be published next Tuesday at noon Eastern. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training, opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. Attachment Theory.